0: Let me get this out of the way. Your preacher makes mistakes. I will do it a lot. I will do it incidentally, not on purpose, but I'm good at it. So it would always behoove you, no matter who's speaking, teaching, or preaching, uh, always double check. I uh, made an error last week. Nobody came up and said it to me. It's okay if you do, but James, the brother of John, is not the author of James. It's the brother of Jesus, and I have done that twice now in preaching. I've said that, and I know better, but in my mind, I'm like trying to sort it while I'm preaching, like, okay, I think I'm getting it wrong. Now you know. It's corrected. This will be out there, so people will know that it's corrected out on the podcast, even though I misspell things sometimes on my podcast. I want to recommend a book to you. I'm gonna have two of them I'll recommend. This first one, the Philippian Fragment. I've told you about it before, I'll remind you again. It is available for just about 11 bucks on Amazon, which is shocking because everything's like two and three times the price these days. But right now, you can still get it for about 11 bucks in a paperback. It's my favorite fiction, and it has something to do with today's message. Today's message is uncomfortable for me because I'm having to step outside of my comfort zone. I hope you are also having to step out of, outside of your comfort zone. That stretches us. The Philippian Fragment did that for me. It's the book that I've told you about before, another book by Calvin Miller that you can get is called Exegetical Fallacies. It's more theological. It's deeper. It's a very good book. But the Philippian fragment is basically, it's a fictional character who's a contemporary of Paul, writing to Clement and of the, in the first century. And he starts talking about, it's so exciting, Brother Clement. It's so exciting that in, in today's culture, it's popular, to be a Christian. It's trendy. I mean, I meet people at work, you know, and they say, hey, I'm a Christian. And it's real trendy. There's bands that play Christian music that sounds like the other music, but it's got Christian lyrics. They've got uh, donkey stickers on the back of stickers that say things about people's Christian faith. And, uh, you know, togas with Christian statements on them. People just wear them around. It's trendy. But I... have I've heard that the Romans are going to bring back the lions. And I'm afraid that when they do, Christianity won't be trendy anymore. And that's a powerful statement. It's probably true. If Christianity is trendy or popular and then persecution comes, we'll find out who the faithful are. There's a story that I heard. From the Kayamichi Men's Group, which is out in Hanobia, Oklahoma, they were very anti-communist in the prime of their existence. They still exist. About a thousand men gather every year in the woods, deep in the woods. You better drive an SUV or a truck to get there because there's potholes that haven't been fixed in 30 years. But you go out there, and it used to be 10,000 people gathered there when they had Paul Harvey speak. Some of you know who that is. But they were very anti-communist. I have some of their old uh, printed sermons from when they were at their peak, and it it was powerful. One of the times I was there, they, is very patriotic. It was over the 4th of July, I believe it was, and They had a giant airplane from the military fly right over the tips of the trees and shook everybody. It was like a cool air show. Very patriotic, anti-communist, and one of the things that really jumped out was when communism, we thought, was just going away from the world, and uh, they decided we're going to become missionaries to communist Russia. So... That, that was a cool thing that I got to watch happen, people coming back from Russia and talking about it. I'll give you a little piece, a story that I heard that I don't know if this is just an illustration, but one of the stories that the people came back from Russia saying was, in a time when it was the underground church, that it was illegal to have churches, the KGB stormed into a church on a Sunday morning that was meeting. A group of people were meeting, and they came in, they shut the doors, they barricaded the doors. Uh, I'm sorry, they haven't barricaded the doors yet. They shut the doors, and they said, they went up in the front, and they had their AK-47s ready to shoot people, and they said, you must denounce Jesus or be killed. If you would simply like to leave, you just go ahead and leave. But those who are here, who want to say, you're, you're not going to denounce Jesus. Those who are leaving are denouncing Jesus. Those who stay, you're faithful Christians, you will be killed. So they let the people who denounced Jesus by exiting leave. Then they locked and barricaded the doors. Then they put their AK-47s down and said, now let's have church. That's book volumes to me. Like, oh, wow. And the Philippian fragment did as well. When I read it, I found myself getting choked up unexpectedly, like, oh, maybe Christianity shouldn't be trendy after all. My story has a little bit to do with that as we go through a very short section today. But I want to give you quickly upfront once again, uh, part of my testimony, because I'm the one talking. Your testimony is important. I hope you tell it. I hope you tell it to me, and maybe I'll get to repeat it sometime in this venue in an appropriate time. But I got to tell you that I did make a commitment to Christ in the summer at um, a Christ and Youth event after church camp and then Christ and Youth. I was definitely compelled to make a decision for Jesus. I wanted to live for him, and I, I told him I was going to do better and I was going to be a better leader. I had adults telling me, you're going to be a leader. And as soon as I got back with the football players and my friends, I started doing the same stuff started acting the same way. I didn't really change my behavior. My, my commitment to Jesus kind of got pushed aside. I attended church, but I wasn't being genuine. And it was on my way home from a football practice with the center of the football team that um, I started feeling, I got hit really hard and I was, started feeling some pressure in my chest and I I couldn't. I felt like I couldn't breathe very well. My friend asked if I was okay. I said, I'll be fine. I go down a hill. It's a, we call it the bio. (laughs) Go down this steep hill and stepped across the rocks and started to go up the other side into my neighborhood. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I fell on the side of the hill. It was fairly steep and I'm laying on my stomach on the front side. And I didn't have the strength to push up and get up. And just before I blacked out, I said a prayer, okay. God I know that I'm not ready to die. I know I've not been living like you want me to. I, I really mean it this time. Maybe you've had prayers like that. And when I woke up, I was on the couch of a stranger. She said that she said that I was knocking at her door, and that I fell over when she answered the door. She said I was on my knees. I'm here today, so I survived. And in the hospital, I remember I had youth group kids come to visit me that thought I was genuine, and I I really wasn't. And I remember them praying for me, and the youth minister praying for me, and I remember they even forced me to listen to some Christian music that I had refused to listen to. Brought in a cassette player and hit the play button and walked out. But I remember God got a hold of me because I wouldn't give him my commitment and really follow through on it. And he loved me enough to get my attention and change the direction of my life. I wanted to give you that up front. I was being, I was not being genuine in my faith. So we're in John chapter 2, verse 23 and following. And the title of the message is, He Knows. I'll I'll warn you up front before we read the text. We're going to read this text. The plan is to read it three times. It's a short text. There's only three verses. Next week, we've got 21 verses to get through. Today, three. We're going to read it in its entirety three times, and I'm not going to do the typical. So read it with me. You'll see it come up behind me. John chapter 2, starting with verse 23. We'll read that two more times today. We're going to see how we can apply it to ourselves. I want to give you some background, though. Since we just read that, you see, this was the Passover feast timeline. We know that Jesus' Jerusalem, our Judean ministry, lasted about eight months based on other scripture. We can piece that together and, and figure that out it was not necessarily extremely successful when you look at the other parts of his ministry. However, this is where he started. You see, one of those things that was interesting about the Hebrew people is they were looking for a Savior that was not like what God was going to send. You see, they were very poor. Under the Roman oppression, Jewish people had become a byword. They had become insignificant, not like in today's world. But back then, they were just considered insignificant. I mean, it had been 400 years since God had interacted with them with outspoken voices. And there were no written miracles written down that were inspired to be written for 400 years. So there, there seemed to be a little bit of a gap there, and they, they felt insignificant by Romans' oppression, and they kept waiting for a Messiah, but it's been 400 years since there's been supernatural in- intervention that had been inspired to be written. And on top of that, they had the publicans, the, the tax collectors that didn't help their impoverished condition. The tax collectors kind of picked on the Jewish people. Even though they were poor, they felt enabled to go and take more. Even though much had already been taken, more taxes were taken. Their cost of living was typically higher than the cost to survive, and then yet The Roman government was using the tax collectors to push the Jewish people down even further. On top of that, they also had their own leaders who had become corrupt. Constantly, the Pharisees and the Sadducees both were pushing the Jewish people down so they could have more power, more wealth, and more control. And they were looking for a Messiah that would come and be a warrior. This Messiah would come. They were praying and hoping for a Messiah that would come and make us rich. We don't want to be poor anymore. It would make us important. We don't want to seem insignificant to the world anymore. We don't want to be picked on. We don't want to be oppressed and pushed down. Our lives need to be easier. They're hoping for a Messiah that will conquer the Roman government and make them go away. That's who they're looking for, a warrior who would physically come in and put everybody in their place and lift up the Jewish people so their lives could be easier. Sometimes we pray like that today. We want everything to be easier when actually sometimes God keeps us close to him by giving us our trials and our tribulations. But this is the background. So when Jesus comes, there he is during the Passover, a time when they are celebrating the death angel that would pass over them. This symbolism of the Passover lamb that saved their lives and preserved generations. Jesus would be the Passover lamb, the one that, is without blemish, the one that would really save them eternally. That's not what they're looking for. You see, they think they need a physical person to save them from all the physical stuff. No, 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 no. They, they, they think, it's not like sometimes we do, that God needs us. God wants us. We need Him. So there was Jesus right there in their midst at the Passover feast, doing miracles, and people are amazed. Are you the one? Are are you the one? But what they're hoping for isn't what he's come to do. What they're thinking isn't what God's thinking at all. No wonder he didn't want to say, yes, but. They weren't ready to hear that. Josephus spoke of Jesus in the 1st century at this particular time, and this is what he said. He had great influence over the people who seemed ready to do anything that he should advise. But they weren't ready to hear what he had to say at this particular time. Now, I I lifted something from Paul Butler's book, Dr. Paul Butler. Concerning Jesus' Knowing. Three things that I think are significant. We'll go through them one by one. He knew just what was in the heart of anyone with whom he came in contact. And we can see the scripture references, John one forty two and 47 to 48. Second, he later read the thoughts of his disciples, of Nicodemus and of the woman of Samaria, Mark 9, 33 to 35, 14, 30, John 3, and John 4. And the third thing, enthroned in heaven, he still sees the motives and schemes of men's hearts. Acts 5, 9, and Revelation 1 to 3. I find it significant that Mr. Butler referenced Revelation because I have never read any commentary greater than his, and I can't even get copies today. So, I want to repeat, he knows, you'll see this slide come up behind me, he knows, he knows, he knows how you were set up before you got here today, what was happening this previous week, the conversations that you had with family, with friends, with neighbors, with coworkers church members. He knows the things you thought and chose not to say. He knows your prayers. He knows your struggles. He knows. Let's read that text again. Maybe you'll grab a little bit more this time as you have the context, at least historically. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. <laughs> he knows. He knows. I told you I'd recommend a second book to you today, and that one um, I'll give you in just a minute. This is Vodi I'll show you an image of him. Uh, he's got gray in his beard, just like I do. That doesn't mean we're smart, but at least we look smarter, maybe. But Votie Bauckham, um I like him, even though he's a Calvinist. I like a lot of my brothers and sisters who are Calvinists. He's a very smart man and I highly recommend to you this book. It's called Fault Lines. I have a copy, so talk to me afterwards if you want. Actually, I'll just set it on the table out there, and if you want to take it, take it. It's got my name on it. Get it back to me, please. And I've got the CD copy. If your CD player plays MP3s, that's a file format, then you can do that while you drive or whatever you want to do. I've got both. I highly recommend it, so much so that I'm going to set them out on the table. Those of you who uh, want to Borrow it, or you can do like some others do, borrow it, loan it out to other church members. Just eventually, hopefully, it comes back to me. I highly recommend it. Why am I mentioning Votie Bauckham? Well, this book talks about very modern things happening today. It's very insightful, very solid in his Christian principles that he brings up in the book. But I want to tell a story and give proper credit because I heard this story from him. And it's an unusual story, and I think that it will speak volumes to you, and it will help in understanding this passage we're talking about. It's connected. I want to talk about strawberries. You see the image? I know. So the story is about a father who picks a strawberry for his son. But I need to back up and give you some background, because in today's world, this doesn't happen very often. Not like it used to. You see, in today's world, we have strawberry-flavored all kinds of things. You go to the store, and you can pick up strawberry-flavored drinks, syrups, cakes, ice cream. You can pick up all kinds of strawberry flavored things including cereal, jelly, jam, and sometimes you're buying things and you don't even know it unless you look. There's no strawberries in here. In fact, if you look closely you'll often find not only there are not strawberries in there but what you're buying comes from China or other questionable places. You can go to a store and get a, for your son or your daughter or you, you can get a strawberry slushy, slurpy, icy, whatever it's called at your favorite place and might not have any strawberries in it at all. Strawberry flavored yogurt. Maybe none. Maybe even get a a strawberry, a blended drink of some kind from your favorite coffee stand. And discover there's no strawberries in here. Just for fun, you should look up what they used to use for artificial raspberry flavoring. Ask me afterwards and I'll tell you. It's disgusting. But kids today, many of them, They're used to artificial strawberry flavoring. It tastes so good. They put so much sweetener in there. They've got sucrose, fructose, and all kinds of other names that many of us don't even know what they are. Sugars, loaded. Lots of other artificial things that are questionable whether or not they're healthy for us. But kids love strawberry flavored things. So do we. So the father thought it would be special. And he would go and he would show the son. This is where strawberries come from. This is how they grow. This is is the way it's supposed to be, natural, healthier. And so he picks a strawberry off the vine and he hands it to his son. And his son's thinking, whoa, I love strawberry-flavored stuff. I love strawberries. So he takes a bite of the strawberry And spits it out because he's disgusted. He's so used to the fake that when he's given the real, doesn't like it. You understand, right? We're talking about Christianity. You see the strawberry slowly disappear. The story about strawberries is not about strawberries. It's about what? we're doing in the world today. What we put out there as Christianity, oh, it's so sweet, tastes so good, but so much of it is artificial. And when somebody's given a taste of real Christianity, it's disgusting to them. You wonder why the world around us it's continually barraging social media and, and all of the search engines and the cable news with the attacks on Christianity. It disgusts them because what we've shown them is fake. Let's read that again. Oh, actually, let's read another passage. Then we'll get to it in a minute. This is Psalm chapter 139, verse 1 and following. Three things Jesus knows. First of all, the condition of the world. As much as it bothers us, what's going on all around us, Jesus knows the condition of our world. Second, Jesus knows the condition of each of our hearts and minds. (laughs) There I was making a commitment to him, but not following through. And I thank God that he grabbed my attention. Even though it made me fragile. Even though it caused me health problems that lingered for years. He knows the condition of each of our hearts and minds. It might bother you sometimes when you think about it. He knows how you talk to your spouse, how you talk to your parent, how you talk to your child, how you talk to your co-worker, how you talk to your neighbors, how you talk. They don't hear you, but how you talk to the other drivers around you when you don't like how they're driving. More importantly, he knows the condition of each of our hearts and minds. Third, Jesus knows our innermost struggles and is the solution to them all. So now let's read it again. The third and final time, John chapter 2, verses 23 and following. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Hmm. Let's throw that slide one more time up there. Jesus knows. He knows. But I think the question that begs this morning that we should ask ourselves, can he trust me? Annie, let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you for loving us through Jesus. Thank you for using others to love us. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for grabbing a hold of us and shaking us when we need it. Thank you for reminding us that you know our thoughts, you know our hearts, you know our actions, you know our commitment, and you know whether or not you can trust us as individuals. Thank you for reminding us that we need to be genuine, that there should not be a need to be a distinction between Christians and authentic Christians. God, forgive us when we've displayed to the world artificial Christianity. Help us to show others what Christianity looks like. One at a time, may we lead others to you with what is real. God, thank you so much. We need you. The world needs you. And we thank you for the opportunity to get ourselves aligned and show others what is real. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.